there's no distance too far for the perfect trip. Hi, checking in for... Or the perfect table. Hey, where are you? Coming! And when you get access to Resi Priority Notify with your Amex Platinum card... Hey, this looks amazing. I'm so glad you made it. And travel benefits at fine hotels and resorts booked through Amex Travel. It's worth the trip. That's the powerful backing of American Express. Terms apply. Learn more at americanexpress.com slash with Amex. It's Freddie Prinze Jr. and Jeff Dye back in the ring. Wrestling with Freddie makes its triumphant return for an electrifying fourth season. Hey, Jeff, are you ready to rumble our way into an all-new season of Wrestling with Freddie? You better believe I have. I've been practicing my body slams, and I'm jacked. All right, don't go injuring yourself now. We'll be highlighting the best stories and matches of the week in wrestling from AEW, WWE, and have one-on-one talks with the best talents in the world of pro wrestling. Listen to Wrestling with Freddie on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. The Big Take from Bloomberg News brings you what's shaping the world's economies with the smartest and best-informed business reporters around the world. We cover the stories behind what's moving money in markets and help you understand what's happening, what it means, and why it matters every afternoon. I'm Sarah Holder. I'm Saleya Mosin. And I'm David Gura. Listen to The Big Take on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. All right, welcome back. SI Boxing Podcast. On this episode, we've got Brian Kenny, the blow-by-blow man for Fox Sports, for DAZN. He joins me to talk about what we saw last weekend with Errol Spence against Danny Garcia, what we're going to see this weekend with Anthony Joshua defending his titles against Kubra Pulev. We get into Canelo a little bit and the Floyd Mayweather exhibition against Logan Paul. Do we care? Should we care? What do we think about Floyd making another exhibition ring return? A little bit later on, Anthony Joshua, the unified heavyweight champion. He is back after more than a year, almost a year, out of the ring. His last fight last December against Andy Ruiz. AJ and I talk about his time off and what exactly should we expect from Joshua in this return? Will we see the old Anthony Joshua, the guy that sought out knockouts, or has Andy Ruiz changed him? Will we see a more cautious version of Joshua, one that fights off the jab more? I dive into that with AJ and much more. Finally, Eric Drath, who is the director of the new documentary on Hector Macho Camacho. It is terrific. I talked to Eric about the process of putting that film together and what he thinks happened to Macho Camacho back in 2012 when he was killed in Puerto Rico. That's a big part of this documentary. Terrific film. It's on Showtime On Demand right now. Check it out and check out my conversation with Eric Drath. As always, best way to support this podcast, get over to Apple Podcasts, post a comment, leave a rating. It's simple. It's easy. It's free. It's the best way to make sure that we keep doing this podcast week after week. That's it. All right. On to the show. This is the Sports Illustrated Boxing Podcast. It's boxing. A look inside boxing with Sports Illustrated's Chris Mannix. Interviews, analysis, and everything going on in boxing. And now a man who I wish was called the Boston Bleeder. All doctors to the ER. It's sort of like getting punched in the face. Chris Chris Mannix. All right, Brian Kenny is here by day. You know him from MLB Network. By night, he is... The voice of boxing, at least for the month of December anyway. Last week, uh, Brian was on the call for Errol Spence's decision win over Danny Garcia. That was on Fox Pay-Per-View. 
The next two weeks, he'll be back with me and his old friends on DAZN. First for Anthony Joshua's heavyweight title defense against Kubrat Pulev on Saturday. And then a week later, the big one, Canelo Alvarez, he returns against Callum Smith. And if you want to see a grown man slobber over a fighter, tune in a little bit early to see Brian's favorite fighter, Julio Cesar Martinez, defend his flyweight title. Is any of that intro inaccurate, Brian Kenny? No, that can all be defended in court. <laughs> I do agree. Uh, well, welcome back, man. We got two more fights, back-to-back, -back, ready to go, back on the zone. You looking forward to it? I am. I, I've, well, one, I, I've, missed, I've missed you guys, even Sergio. Um, <laughs> and uh, I've missed being with, with the whole crew at the zone. It's been far too long. And look, I look. I'm calling an Anthony Joshua fight, and then a Canelo fight. You know, look, it's top of the food chain. I had Errol Spence last week uh, to see this level of boxing, especially well, like last week, um, just to be back with fans in an arena. Um, I've been calling a lot of fights from remote during the shutdown, and obviously the months before that, we we weren't doing anything. So to call a fight in front of fans was was fabulous. Very little can compare to eighty thousand at Wembley, where we made our DAZN debut, right, with Joshua and Pavekin. But just to have some fans there, I don't, Chris, if we go to a middle school and see guys fighting four-rounders, it'd be exciting. So, yeah, to, to see. And Joshua, look, there's so much intrigue there. You know how I, how I feel about Canelo. And Canelo is going for the real title at 168. Mm -hmm. I know Caleb Plant, I think we're on the same page, is the number one contender at 68. And he's got a belt. He's a champion, all that. He's a titleist. But I think the best champion, the number one guy, is Callum Smith. So Canelo's going for the real title now, be the real champ at 60, the real champ at 68. Uh, that's rare in the history of boxing. Yeah, we'll get into Callum Smith, but I I'm with you. This is a real fight. Anyone thinking that Callum Smith is somebody you look past on your way to other things is crazy. Callum Smith is the real deal at 168 pounds. Before we get into that, I, I want to talk about Floyd Mayweather and his recent announcement, denouncing his intention to return to the ring for another exhibition, this time against YouTuber Logan Paul. Uh, last seen in the ring, Floyd was in December, dropping, uh, sorry, Logan Paul was last seen in the ring in December, dropping a decision to another YouTuber, KSI. Uh, this will be Floyd's uh, second straight exhibition following a one-sided knockout of Japanese kickboxer Tenshin Nasakawa last year. Brian, you covered almost the entirety of Floyd Mayweather's career. Uh, wh what do you make of this latest chapter? It is what it is. Um... I have very little interest in these exhibitions and it, it's just me. I'm not trying to make a statement. I'm not trying to be uh, a boxing snob, but look, I used, I trained with Mike Tyson, you know, in 1985, 1986, 87, 88. Um, and I've known Mike through the years. I'm certainly nostalgic for those days. And for Mike and Mike was, is about the most exciting fighter. No, he's the most exciting fighter I've ever seen with my own eyes. And I was in the gym with him every day. And yet he came back to fight Roy Jones, who is the best fighter I've ever seen with my own eyes. And I just, you know, and I know what, but it's two 50 year old guys boxing. I know what it is. So I just wasn't excited, even though I love both guys in the ring, love them. But I know I'm not seeing them unless we time travel. I'm not seeing the real them. I'm seeing this them. And so with Floyd, I didn't see the fight that you just mentioned because you know, F Floyd's not not even Roy Jones or Mike Tyson exciting. Like, I think a lot of people might think, oh, Tyson could really wreck havoc in the ring. You know, Floyd's not. He's just going to outbox this guy. Floyd will outbox most everybody on the planet when he's 60, 65. <laughs> uh, but again, I don't want to put it down. I'm not looking to. I'm, I'm not interested. 
I'm sorry, I'm not interested. I'm much more interested in, you know, better Biev and Canelo and Spence and Terrence Crawford and the guys who are on top now. It's just like, you know, Sugar Ray. I was texting Sugar Ray all over the week, you know, weekend about Errol Spence and we worked together with Sugar Ray Leonard. Do I want to see Sugar Ray Leonard box now? No. Do I want to watch him on tape? Yes. Did I pay full boat all through the 80s to see Sugar Ray box? Yes. I just, well, how do you feel about it? Because I'm just, it leaves me empty. Yeah, I feel at this point ambivalent, kind of like you do, to what he's doing. And it's because I don't consider Floyd a boxer anymore. I think I would be, I was more upset that Floyd went for his 50th win against Conor McGregor than I am about any of this. Like, this doesn't bother me one bit. Floyd is a retired athlete. He is trying to make a couple of bucks off his name and his likeness, and he's doing mm-hmm. it in fights that he can clearly win. Uh, if you have, like, 90 seconds, go back and watch Floyd versus Tenshin Nasakawa, uh, which was a demolition by Mayweather against a Japanese kickboxer. I don't know how this will play out. We both have seen Logan Paul before, having been part of the broadcast. His fight was on on DAZN last November uh, when he fought KSI. He's a bigger guy, but big deal. Like Floyd's going to box circles around him in that fight. It just it doesn't have any impact on me. If you want to pay $50, $60, $70, whatever it is, to see Floyd Mayweather back in the ring one more time, more power to you. A lot of people did when Mike Tyson fought. According to Triller, it was upwards of one and a half million people that bought that pay-per-view. If the same number of people want to see uh, Floyd against a Logan Paul, great, but it's not boxing. Like, if Floyd, I mean, I get your, I take your point, Brian, where if Floyd came back and boxed at 60, he'd outbox a lot of guys. But, like, if Floyd decided, like, I want to get back into the, the welterweight rankings right now, I wouldn't make him top five, in my opinion. He's just, he's older. Like, he's still a good yeah, fighter, yeah. and he beats some guys, but Spence is better, Crawford's better, Danny Garcia's probably better, Thurman's probably better. There's a whole list of guys that's probably better because they've been more active. Pacquiao, at this point, is probably better. So Floyd, Floyd's almost like a WWE character to me at this point. Right. It's just, you watch it for show, you don't watch it to see a master at work. And I don't blame him. I, I think Floyd truly, Chris, sits back like he did with the Conor McGregor thing and was talking to his guys, you know, while, while he's watching his 70-foot TV in his living room <laughs> and going, uh, they're going to pay me how much to fight this guy? Really? Oh, God, well, what am I thinking? Like, you, you, I don't blame them. You have to. And for Tyson to come back and get over a million buys again, it's mind-boggling. So God bless. Again, mm-hmm. go ahead and do it. Um, I'm just not that excited. Now, you even said Errol Spence. Like, if Floyd came back and said, I want to box Errol Spence, Whoa, whoa, I go out of my mind. And I know, yeah, but we get to see it, right? Mm-hmm. And that's it, in quotes, it, top of the food chain. Like, just like when Oscar, so Oscar De La Hoya said he was coming back for real. I don't know where that stands now, but that's a different animal. It's like, wait, you're going to box the top guys, a top 10, you know, guy at whatever weight. It doesn't matter. That's a very different story. I'm very interested in that because that's a real test. Everything else is, as Snoop Dogg said, your your two drunk uncles fighting each other at a barbecue. <laughs> Even if they were once the best in the world, that's where they are right now. Yeah, uh, no, we're on the same page there. the 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 Tyson Jones fight, not to get off track here, but I, I, like Roy looked like he hadn't worked out at all, you know, going into that. Whereas Tyson made oh. it a little bit exciting. Roy, when I saw the picture of Roy, I just went, <laughs> "Oh my god!" Like Roy had the most like fantastic boxing physique for. Mm-hmm seemingly ever like so i didn't see him fight in i think the last time i saw him box was in boise 
like when he was fighting in Boise, Idaho, on not on even on TV. And then he fought over in Russia, and I didn't even see those. So mm. my image of, of Roy Jones is this fantastic physique, you know, just electrifyingly fast. And when I saw the picture of him standing there for the win, I just went, oh, oh, no. <laughs> like, no. <laughs> like, it's – I didn't want to see that, you know? No. I didn't, I didn't want to see that. I didn't want to see his body. Look, he looks good for most humans. I'm not saying mm. he looks – but that's not Roy Jones. Roy Jones looked like a god, and that's what I wanted to see. No, and, and listening to him, we talked about this last podcast, but listening to him gasp at the end of the interview with Jim Gray, like, I'll do this again. <sighs> no, no, we're, we're done. We're, let's, you know, collect a nice check, Roy, seven figure check, and let's walk away before, you know, you fight somebody bigger and meaner and look, someone looking to hurt you in that point. Younger. In that moment. Yeah. Younger. <laughs> that, we, don't, we don't need to see uh, any more of that. All right, let's talk about a real fight. This was last Saturday. You were down in Arlington, Texas, ringside for that when Errol Spence defended his unified 147-pound championships, dominating Danny Garcia en route to a unanimous decision. Uh, Spence keeps his titles and proves, which is maybe more important, that there were no lasting effects from that horrific car crash he was in just over a year ago. So sitting there, Brian, what did you think of Spence's performance? Oh, I thought it was fantastic. Um, and I think he'll be better next time out. Um, I, I'm almost a little disappointed to hear him say, I'll be back in the summer. I'm like, summer? I think I said it was on, on the end of the telecast. How's March? Hmm. Where's April? Like, come on, you, you can fight March, April, February. Come back in, and then in the summer again. Like, I want to. I think he needs to be active. Now, look, uh, all things considered, of course, he was thrown from his Ferrari at 100 miles an hour. I mean, thank God he's alive. And he looked like Errol Spence. So you're right. He looked great. Now, let me ask you, why am I disappointed in Danny Garcia? Because I was. And you, you already know why. I mean... He didn't engage, at least not anywhere near as much as he should have, fighting a guy that I thought you wanted to test his chin earlier in that fight. I, I didn't see, and look, I haven't seen the Danny Garcia at 140 that we're seeing at 147. I think they're two different fighters. I think the guy at 147 yep. was more willing to trade and try to time you, whereas the guy at 140 was willing to do it, and the guy at 147 is just a little bit more tentative than that. Here's why I, I'm, you're, you're, you're right on it. You're near it. But I'll, I'll go even deeper because um, we haven't discussed this ahead of time. Mm -hmm. But I know we kind of think in a similar fashion as I praise both of us at the same time. Um, no, I, Except, I mean, I scoring. Except scoring, of course. Except scoring. I, I, no, I, that's, we're fine on that, too. I just, <laughs> no, I, I appreciate your sensibility on most of these things because um, we, Danny and Angel had to know the, the, the score going in from the get-go knowing that this isn't Chris Algieri fighting Manny Pacquiao, where it's like, I've got to come up with the fight plan of a lifetime. I've got to try something tremendously different. I'm really going to get crazy. I've got to change a lot in order to even compete. This is not that. This is, you know, Spence is here and Garcia is here. He's very close. He's a top five welterweight. He was right. He was great against Lucas Matisse that night when he, that was a true big time fight. For, and that was for supremacy at 140, world supremacy. Mm -hmm. But he had to know, in every conversation I had with him and Angel, I know they're not going to tell me everything fight plan. They think I'm going to blab, even though I don't. Like when I'm asking them something off camera, um, uh, you, know, you know, when we do fighter meetings, it's like we don't go talking about this until we're in the fight and you're doing it. But So they didn't tell me ahead of time when I was on camera talking to Danny, didn't tell me on the fight, in the fighter meetings. But I really got the sense, and Lennox Lewis did as well, that – I don't hear a new game plan. And you have to know 
you need a different game plan. Your natural style is to, is to, be, is to lay back, counterpunch, punish, and be consistent. Danny's very consistent. He's very tough. He's very smart. But the pre-fight game planning, what's your, what's your plan A, B, and C? Because we already know A's not working. Like, A gets you another loss. It was my first question to him, Chris, was you already lost close to Keith Thurman. And Thurman was chasing him around the ring. You already mm -hmm. lost close to Sean Porter. A lot of people thought he beat Porter. I thought it was really close. So you already lost to the top two guys. What makes you think you're going to, you know, beat the guy who's even better than those two? You know, who beat Sean Porter? Barely, but did. Mm -hmm. Um Wow, what makes you think that? Like, you must think, I'm so close to this guy, but I can't do my stuff. Their styles were perfect for Spence, and you had to know you had to do something a little different, and I just felt like he didn't, and you had to try something radical otherwise. Now, I said to Joe Goosen, why take the fight? He said, oh, you don't want to take the fight, take the money? No, take the money, but then think it through a lot and have plan B and C when A obviously isn't going to work. And, it's, and I want to point out, I want to be specific, there's only so much you can do a lot of cases. I pointed out Chris Algieri against Manny Pacquiao. People remember that fight. There's only so much that kid from Long Island who started boxing when he was 21 years old was going to be able to do against Pacquiao, right? Mm -hmm. But that's not the case with Danny Garcia. There were lots of things he could have done. And to hear Angel in the corner between rounds telling him, I think Angel's done a great job with him, his dad. But to hear him saying, like, you know, you're giving him too much respect. No, you've got to give him specific things. Mm -hmm. And it wasn't there, and it made it an easy night. I thought the most likely scenario was that at the end of the night, it'll be 7-5, 8-4, and Danny and Angel will be putting their hands up in the air again like they did against Thurman and Porter and go, oh, we won that fight. But they couldn't even get that close. So that's why I'm disappointed. I think the world of Danny Garcia, I, I, you know, I really thought he – but that was it, – it's up here. You had to come up with something a little different, and they just didn't. Yeah, I think we see things along the same wavelength. I mean, I was sort of zeroed in listening to Angel between rounds saying you're showing him too much respect. How I interpreted that was that Danny knew what was coming back at him and he was getting caught, even if it wasn't these, you know, explosive exchanges. He knew what kind of power Errol had and didn't want to get in there and mix it up. But you know so that, but you know that, right? Like, you know that, you know, going in, he is popping you with a real jab yeah and then snaking in that left hand that will hurt you to the body. Mm -hmm. You know that when you sign for the fight. <laughs> so you got to come up with something. Something like, hey, go, turn southpaw, double up on the jab, bum rush him. Mm -hmm. You know, anything. Like, and I thought even his best chance, like, you, and watch, I watched a ton of tape because I was sequestered. You know, we're all quarantined. So mm -hmm. I said, all right, what am I going to do? Let me watch more tape. Let me go back and watch more Spence tapes, more Spence tapes. I watched, like, almost all of his fights, everything I could. And it was clear, if you don't get this guy early, you're not getting him late. He is, he is, and I'll give this the highest praise, he is like Floyd Mayweather in that his form stays true round after round after round. And so if you don't get him early, he's going to just beat you up late. It's a fact. He does it to everybody. Look what he did to Kel Brook. Brook was boxing great. That was an even fight. By the end, Brook took a knee and said, I'm, I'm done. Mm -hmm. He doesn't stop. It's not like it's, he, he just overwhelms you you know, with just this consistency of time, and he won't stop bopping you. So, like, why wouldn't, after the guy has a car crash that almost kills him, why wouldn't you just, you know, bum rush him in the first round? Really rough him up. Don't come out and go, okay, let ding, here we go. No, chase him down and mm -hmm. make him think from the get-go. Look, Peter McNeely did it, <laughs> but you, he couldn't close that gap in skill. 
Muhammad Ali did it to George Foreman. Raced across the ring and just started firing shots at him, saying, I'm big and strong too. I can just, I'm, and there's nothing you can do to me for now for these 15 seconds. And I'm not saying it works, it knocks him out, but try something because otherwise the end to me seemed obvious and it was even more widespread than I thought it was going to be. Oh, it, it was anticlimactic by the middle of the fight when you knew that Danny wasn't going to get outside his comfort zone and, and change up the game plan at all. You knew this was the result. Spence, uh, for whatever reason, I mean, it was clearly a good tactical decision, was going to keep doing what he's doing. That's kind of what he's he's done in the last few fights. Um, Danny, what most frustrated me about Danny, he's 32 years old and it's not make or break, especially not in the PBC universe where there are big fights you can make, rematches you can make with guys like Thurman and Porter down the line. Even Adrian Broner's been mentioned as a possible candidate to fight Danny Garcia, but this was your moment and you didn't kind of give it everything you had in that moment. Let me ask you about Spence. Um, what was the difference? I mean, did you see a difference in these guys or did you see the same level of skill in Spence that you saw uh, a year plus ago? I thought he was great against Porter. Because, and look, the, the styles make the fights. He had a guy that, was, that had a real plan, you know, not, not had a plan and a style that was going to, you know, test Errol Spence from his sheer volume and physicality. It was a much better matchup for Porter than it was for Danny Garcia. Um, and I thought Spence was marvelous. Uh, he, was, he was strong enough to hold him off early. And then he caught him twice in the 11th. Once he stunned Sean with, I think it was like kind of a, like a straight right and stunned him and weakened him. And then we hit him with the hook, the left hook. That's when he put him down. And if you watch the end of that fight, the way he's chasing Sean Porter, trying to knock him out in the 12th round is, you know, kudos to him. Hard to top that. And he mm. didn't have to. Um, that's why I say, I think if he got back in the ring in the spring, fight someone lower, fine. I think we all accept that and then get another mega fight in the, in the summer. Um, I think he would just get sharper and sharper. Let me ask you something. Cause people are asking me this and I don't quite know the answer. I think I know who I'd favor Spence versus Crawford. Who would you favor? Man, it's tough. I'd probably favor Spence the, because I think Spence can keep Crawford off him with that jab and make it the kind of fight we saw against Danny Garcia, whereas Crawford's size disadvantage would probably force him to take more chances. He, he would certainly be successful because he's an incredible talent and an incredible athlete, but I'd probably favor Spence given what I saw uh, in this last fight. What about you? Yeah, same in that, and that's because Spence is a little bigger He's extremely consistent. He's extremely intuitive. He's a very high boxing IQ. Um, and obviously we're both saying, it almost goes without saying, Crawford is so tough and so good and a good fighter that obviously it would be a mega fight and it would be great. Um, I, that's why I'm not saying, oh, Spence beats him. I would favor Spence only because I think he's peaking, you know, right now, uh, you know, these these next 18 months. And I hope, the fight can be made. I, uh, people have been asking me about this, and I'm like, look, uh, I get disappointed. I don't talk about it a lot because I don't see it being made. Um, and I hope it doesn't turn out to be – remember how hot it was? Like, we were, we were working together. Uh, Deontay Wilder, Anthony Joshua. Mm -hmm. Deontay Wilder, Anthony Joshua would have owned the world. They would have been doing a million buys easy on pay-per-view. They could have fought each other three straight times shut out everybody else, including Tyson Fury, because Tyson was just coming back and say, look, Tyson, you can fight anybody you want, but you went away three years by. Mm -hmm. they, they, they wouldn't have lost to anybody else except each other. 
they could have made. It would have been a worldwide thing. Remember that 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 moment in time where it was so big, globally big. This wouldn't be globally as big, but I, I think Spence Crawford would just like ignite everybody's imagination. We always bring them back. It's cliche, but like the 80s and the welterweights with Sugar Ray, with Hagler, with Hearns, with Durant, where you're like, I don't know who wins this fight. I've got mm. to see it. And what you're doing by delaying it is making it less likely you get those rematches and get Spence Crawford part one, part two, part three. I think you eventually do get Spence versus Crawford if for no other reason than when Crawford's contract is up in about a year, which is when I've been told it is up after a couple of fights, he's going to be gone. Like he'll go over to the PBC side and eventually that fight gets made. But in 2022, Brian, I think it's still a great fight, but every month that passes literally at this point, I think it gets less and less significant or less and less yeah, no every and everything can have anything can happen yeah. anybody can lose anybody can get thrown from their ferrari oh that already happened but he survived yeah and and guys just diminish crawford's what 33 um yeah. you know that's that's you know i know you know 33 is the new 29 but it's not <laughs> young and 30 and spence is 30 so like it's on now and everyone thinks i've been i've lived through this i sat next to lennox lewis and i I, I put it to him during the fight. I was like, you know what? Uh, we, we've already seen this guy's throwing, you know, belts in garbage cans rather than take the fight. And Lennox, for those kids out there, Lennox Lewis, Riddick Bowe never happened. Mm -hmm. And Lennox Lewis, Mike Tyson almost never happened. And it happened very overripe, way past its, its due date. And Tyson Holyfield finally happened. But you, if you put something off, you think, oh, there's time. Nope, nope. It'll go away. And it doesn't have to be as egregious as Mayweather Pacquiao. That was egregious. And that was obviously way past its sell date. But it happens faster than you think. And there's no better example right now than thinking, try to remember how hot Anthony Joshua, Deontay Wilder would have been worldwide. Everybody. And Chris, you want to tell all these guys, you, you all would have made so much money. You all like this helps everyone. I, I, I've lived through it. I get tired of it. And then I, I get criticized because, oh, you're not pushing for it. I'm like, what do you, I'm calling a fight. What do you want from me? Yes, of course I want to see it. And yes, of course, I try to acknowledge everybody in the division. Um, but it, it's maddening that we've kind of now gotten back to. And it just, it's an organic thing that's happened on its own. But much like in the 90s, just before Oscar De La Hoya fought Ike Corte. And then suddenly the welterweights, that was, then it was welterweight too. You had Whitaker, De La Hoya, Corte, all in the same division. Nobody's fighting each other. And then they started to, because Oscar got after it. So you can only hope. It, they, you know, Tyson Jones just did 1.6 million buys. You want to <laughs> tell these guys, it's possible. I don't want to hear, oh, in this fragmented universe, you can't blah, blah, blah. You, they just did it. They just did it. All right, I was, was, was going to laugh out of why fighters care about the fragmentation. Like, they'll never make less money. The people that make a little bit less money are the promoters who have to be involved in a co-promotion and the networks who have to be involved with other network. What do you care if you're a fighter? Why do you give a damn what Fox or DAZN or ESPN makes? Like, why could you possibly care about the outcome of their findings? That, that always, always befuddled me. And the other thing too, Brian, like, these guys, Spence and Crawford have got to stop chasing Manny Pacquiao. Manny Pacquiao's not fighting either one of them. He's just not. If, if the people around him, and some of the guys at the top, have brain cells, they say, Conor McGregor and Mikey Garcia, and then be done with it. You've done all that you've needed to accomplish in your career. You've fought the tough guys. Why in the world 
would you put yourself in a position to get your head caved in by one of those two guys when you can make more money against McGregor and against Mikey Garcia in Saudi Arabia or wherever you want to put it in the Middle East? And maybe you lose to Mikey Garcia, but you don't get beat up. And at this point, I don't know about you, but I don't want to see Pacquiao beat up. I don't need to see that of a 41, almost 42-year-old man uh, in the ring. It's almost like I was watching the uh, the Hector Camacho documentary last that night. That was excellent, yeah. It was, it was, yeah, it was outstanding. Uh, you know, my friend Teddy Atlas was all over. It was great. Mm-hmm. Just to, like, kind of relive boxing in the 80s in New York. It was great. It was nasty. Um, and then to see, there's Sugar Ray Leonard in his last fight, 1997. And the same sort of thing. You're, I'm thinking, oh, man, that's not Sugar Ray Leonard. It looks like him, but it's not him. And so Pacquiao's going to find that. Like, the worst thing that happened, I thought it would happen against Keith Thurman. But credit to Pacquiao, it didn't. He, he looked great against Thurman. But that's like the worst thing that can happen to you. It's like, whoa, now he's emboldened. He's going to keep on going until he gets beat up for good. And that's it's a bad ending. We've seen it many times. Yeah, I, I don't need to see. I just don't need to see it. I, I'd like to see if he loses to Mikey Garcia. It's a nice, graceful way to go out with a golden parachute behind him. And then do exhibitions. I don't care. There's got to be somebody that wants to fight you in. in the he seems busy enough. Like, you know, he yeah. keeps getting more public honors and. And, and a higher station <laughs> yeah, in does. government in the Philippines. He seems to be busy enough. Like he's he's transitioned already. You know, leave it. Leave us alone. Or, or fight. You know, look, I, I, I know what I want to see him fight, of course. And that's that's the issue. He's still exciting and his brand is still red hot. It is. It is. And I get why these guys are chasing him, but uh, I just don't get the sense. I mean, Freddie Roach might say one thing that gets a headline on boxing scene, but you know, behind the scenes, he's like, I don't want Spence. I don't want Crawford. Like, why would he want these guys for his fighter? He knows what Manny is, knows the level of guys Manny can beat, and there's really no need to go down uh, that path. All right, let's talk about the two fights coming up. First, Anthony Joshua back in the ring. First fight since last December when he knocked off Andy Ruiz in Saudi Arabia. This time, taking care of a mandatory in Kubrat Pulev. We don't have to get too deep into Pulev here. I I can respect him getting this mandatory shot. He's won eight fights in a row since he beat Vladimir Klitschko. He beat Derek Chisora, which is a good win. He has some other semi-decent wins on that resume. This is fine. I don't look at him, though, as a significant threat to Joshua because I don't think he has the chin of Andy Ruiz, and I don't think he has the hand speed of Andy Ruiz, the two things that did AJ in in his last loss uh, to Ruiz. But about Joshua, you saw him in Saudi Arabia. That was not the Anthony Joshua we had seen for the 20-plus fights that preceded it. He was more cautious. He was more calculating. He didn't engage as much as he has in other fights. I think my question coming into this fight, Brian, is will we see that version of Anthony Joshua moving forward? Has he become Anthony Joshua Klitschko? Has he become a new version of Vladimir Klitschko where he fights off the jab, he uses his size, he counterpunches, and he is okay with lopsided decisions. Do you think that we see that version of Joshua or was Ruiz just the one guy he needed to get past and we see the in-ring predator once again? Yeah, I, um, we don't know, to answer the last question. You and I disagreed slightly, I believe, ringside. I don't want to mischaracterize the, what you thought what you said, but we, we had plenty of time to chat <laughs> on the travel back <laughs> from Saudi Arabia. From what I recall, I thought Joshua was masterful against Ruiz, doing what he had to do. Uh, but I know, I think, if I'm recalling what you were saying, there is a, there is a fine line between masterful and reluctant. Mm-hmm. You know, it's close, and I get it. But against Ruiz, I, you can't blame him 
for being a little reticent to engage even a fat Andy Ruiz, a fat er Randy uh, Andy Ruiz, who is still was still you could see a dangerous guy when you get in his grill, bang bang, like right in mm-hmm. front of you. So AJ was like, "Whoa, I've been down that road before," and I landed on my back. I don't blame him for boxing that way. I thought he boxed beautifully, masterfully. He also really slims down. Uh, I'd be interested to see what he weighs in and how he looks physically when he gets into the ring this week. But I think he look nobody. You never go back to being the same guy, but I think he'll be much more like that exciting kind of multi-dimensional boxer puncher. He's just too big and physical to do that. He did what he had to do against Ruiz, and I think he now has a chance against a, a slightly lesser opponent to kind of dictate the physicality in the ring, and we have to see it happen, but I'd love to see him impose his will a little more when he's outboxing guy and bring the thump. Look, he only has to win this fight to get the fight everybody is looking forward to that being Tyson Fury AJ potentially the undisputed heavyweight championship he doesn't have to look good in this fight but I'd like to see him look good I think this is an ideal opponent for him to look good against one of the films I've been watching of Pulev was his loss to Klitschko the only loss of his career he had in that fight I think the worst game plan in the history of boxing game plans. I might take it a step further. He might have had the worst game plan in the history of sports game plans. He just stood there (laughs) and traded with Vladimir Klitschko. I think Vlad was just standing there being like, is this guy really going to stand there and see if my left hook can knock him out? And sure enough, it did. It knocked him down, I think, four or five times, and then eventually knocked him out. If that's the same Pulev, and I don't think a guy changes all that much in his late 30s. I think we're going to see the same Kubrat Pulev, this is an opportunity. This is a guy that's standing right in front of you that does not have a great chin like Andy Ruiz does that you can knock out and say, look, I got my titles back. Now I'm all the way back. Now you, Tyson Fury, you're next. It wouldn't surprise me, Brian. You know, there's a thousand fans going to be let into that building on fight night. Wouldn't surprise me if Tyson Fury's one of them and that they have some kind of build up to that fight with him sitting ringside and climbing into the ring immediately afterwards. This will be Joshua's opportunity to present B-roll to the world for getting ready for that yep. Fury showdown. I think that's what's on the line here. He wins, he wins, he gets it no matter what. But the buzz will be so much bigger if he goes out and flattens Pulev in the same way he's flattened so many others. You're right. Remember, um, I remember uh, going to work at MLB Network um, uh, on a Monday, like after a fight weekend, and I couldn't believe how many people were talking about Deontay Wilder, Dominic Brazil. You know, and we know who Dominic Brazil is, like a sturdy guy, former football player, but he got poleaxed by Deontay and like just mainstream sort of boxing fans, guys who are on the fringe. These are all my baseball producers who like boxing, but, you know, could take it or leave it depending on how exciting it is. They couldn't get, get enough of talking about how great Wilder was. So, yes, if we have a big knockout, that's the B-roll you need to build. And for people to get excited about Joshua, because we were excited about Joshua, you know, not that long ago. He's Apollo Creed. I mean, he's just fantastic. So what's not to love about that guy if he's exciting in the ring? And normally he is. He was against Povetkin. That's the kind of fight I'm looking for here where the guy will engage. And you're right. In order to really ignite everybody's imagination, you need everyone to think that this isn't just fodder for Tyson Fury. Because our last image of Fury is outboxing Wilder, you know, by a wide, wide margin. I'm serious. Worst game plan you'll ever see. Like, this is like Grady Little leaving Pedro in in the playoffs. This is 
you know, the Rams throwing on the Patriots with three men in the box. Like, this was bonkers how bad that game plan was coming in. I, Jets this you. weekend. Jets blitz on the last play. I mean, yeah. like, there's, there's bad big. decisions. This we is, like, examples. even worse. It's even worse <laughs> because you're going to get knocked out. Like, you're about to get hit in the face by a missile. And you're just lining yeah. yourself up to go and take it. So if he has that same approach, this is a great opportunity uh, for Anthony Joshua in this one. All right, let's finish with Canelo back on December 19th. He's taken on Callum Smith, which I feel like a lot of people, Brian, are saying like, all right, he's taken on Callum Smith. Let's see what's after Callum Smith. I am not talking about what's after Callum Smith. We can get into Golovkin. We can get into the unifications that Canelo was talking about. But Callum Smith, to me, is so much more than just a live underdog. It's not... A coin flip fight because Canelo, I think, is the best fighter in the world and the best fighter in the world deserves the respect of being a a significant favorite going in. But Callum Smith is not the fighter that looked bad against John Ryder. John Ryder is a southpaw. He makes fights ugly. He made that fight ugly with Callum Smith. And I don't think Callum took that fight all that seriously. To me, Callum Smith is the big, sturdy, 168-pounder that knocked out Roy, uh, George Groves, that knocked out Hassan Nadam, that was undefeated or is undefeated uh, in his professional boxing career. This is going to be the biggest man that Canelo Alvarez has faced in the ring. A legit six foot three, probably going to weigh in like 185, 190 on fight night. A guy with a jab, a guy with real power. I, I don't know, Brian, this, this to me is... I don't know if we can say it's Canelo's toughest test to date because the first Golovkin fight, there was so much buildup for that. And Eris Landy Lara was certainly really tough at 154. But this is a real fight for Canelo Alvarez, in my opinion. What do you think? Oh, this is the real champ at 168. Like this, He's the ring magazine champ. And I know I think that's fallen out of favor. But all that does is try to reflect what's happening in the ring. Like You need to do a lot to win, the, to win a ring magazine title. He's got, what, two of the belts and the ring magazine belt. Again, I think Caleb Plant is right there. I thought he looked fantastic in his last fight, and he trains beautifully. He's very dedicated. So I think the world of him, I think he's like what you would call the number one contender in the old days, and that's meaningful. Callum Smith's the real champ. When you go and fight the real champ, that means something. And this is also not Sergey Kovalev on the back end. This is a champ in his prime. And as you know, like through the years, um, like even like the criticism Floyd Mayweather got, he carefully avoided fighting a guy who was peaking. Like, you want no part of that guy. Callum Smith, like, as much as anybody's peaking now after this pandemic, who knows? Mm-hmm. But Callum Smith is at is in his prime. He's on top. He should be completely geared up for this. And right, at his best, he's rangy and strong and stylish. He's very good. He's the w- champion of the world in that weight class. And the champion of the world just below him is going up. It should be a super fight. Smith hasn't kind of made that level yet, but uh, I agree with you. This is, it's legit. Like, unless he went up to 75 and fought better Biev, mm-hmm. this is the best fight out there. Like, uh, you know, because uh, who, who's stepping up? Like, uh, are, are the Charlos moving up? You know, he, Charlos at 160 or his brother, who's the real champ at 154. Like, you know, Jermel and Jamal both present a test, but you could make a case. I think this is, if you said, hey, BK, you could, you know, find one fight for Canelo right there. I'd say that one, the most realistic one. Would I want to see Triple G a third time? Yeah, of course. Um, but this is this is the real thing. I'm I'm with you completely. Uh, Triple G is for the the more casual fans. Like that's to bring them mm-hmm. back because I think there's still an appetite for Golovkin versus Canelo three. Because I do think there's a disconnect between what like the boxing diehards see and what the casual fans want. 
right? Like they, you know, the mm-hmm. boxing purists will say, we've seen Golovkin the last couple of fights. Uh, he's not the same guy he was going into the first Canelo fight. But casual right. fans don't care. They know Golovkin's name. They know his knockouts. They know how close those first two fights are. They want to see that fight. But, you know, this was kind of like casually accepted by Canelo Alvarez with a month plus to go before yeah. the fight. And this is the toughest fight out there for him. It's tougher, I think, than Jamal Charlo, who is still not yet proven at 160. It's tougher than Jamal Charlo, who is still at 154. This is a big guy that has the ability to hurt Canelo. Now, he does present opportunity for Canelo, like that is a long torso, Brian, that he's got there. And Canelo is one of the best, if not the best body punchers in all yeah. of boxing. So that's going to be open for him at different times during this fight. Not as open as Rocky Fielding made it back in 2018, but I think that's going to be open for him. Uh, but this is a guy that can hit harder than Rocky Fielding, is more talented than Rocky Fielding, and can do a whole bunch of bad things to you if you make any mistakes in the ring. That's- I, I almost I almost said that name, by the way. I, I wanted to say, you know, for anybody out there that that's thinking, oh, this is Rocky Fielding. No, no, no. It's no. a very different guy. Don't get your Brits confused. It's a very different human being. And yeah, Fielding had, and this is what is a shame about all the belts that are out there, is that a guy like Rocky Fielding, no disrespect, had one of the belts that really didn't mean anything, but Canelo grabbed it. And no matter what we say or point out, people will say, well, he won a title. And then someone will say, well, he has a title at, 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 at 168. No, not really. It was a belt. It was a trinket. Um, Callum Smith has real belts, you know, and just like Caleb Plant has a real belt, but Callum Smith's the best guy. This is not Rocky Fielding. And this is, again, this is part of the whole, you know, uh, problem with boxing. I don't want to be talking problems with boxing all the time, but Mm. that's part of it is that here's a real guy, a real champ, and we're trying to sell him. (laughs) It should go without saying, it's like, this guy's the champion of the world. You don't have to explain well, you know, when Ricardo Mayorga was the welterweight champion of the world, you didn't have to explain, I know he's raw, I know he doesn't look the part, but he's no, it's like, wait, is he the welterweight champion of the world? Yes. Well, what, do, what else do I need to know? So he's the super middleweight champion of the world. Callum Smith is the real thing. And yet, because there's so many belts devaluing uh, what the real champ is, this is what we're left with. I don't think the phrase unification fight will come out of any of our mouths on the 19th. This is not... Yeah, no, please. Yeah, oh. It is not. No, no. It is not. Um, Last thing for you. Canelo, on his press conference, uh, dismissed the idea of fighting Golovkin next, saying he wants to unify at 168. I'm not really buying that, Brian. I I think, you know, the stars are kind of lining up for that third Golovkin fight if both get through their fights on that weekend. Golovkin against Camille Zarameta on uh, December 18th. That's a fight he should win going away. If Golovkin is anything close to the same Golovkin, he should knock out Camille Zarameta, which will give him some momentum. The next night, Canelo against uh, Callum Smith. I'm not against Canelo against Caleb Plant down the line or David Benavidez or Jamal Charlo, any of that. But I think the most interest is going to be in a third Golovkin fight. And I think by far the most money is going to be in a third Golovkin fight because you and I both know that the fight DAZN has been craving for the better part of the last three years has been Canelo Golovkin three. So I don't think they'll be uh, skimping on the offers for that fight to ultimately happen. What do you think about what Canelo said about his future? Yeah, well, well, one boy, he really hates Golovkin. <laughs> like yes, he, he does. Just, yes, he, he does. Hates he hates him so much he doesn't even want to beat him up another time. Like that's <laughs> that's how much. Like it's like. But, but if you hate him so much, Canelo, you could go in and beat him up again. No, I hate him too much. I don't even want to touch him with my fists. Um, so Doesn't want him to get the still, payday. Doesn't want him to get the he's payday. Punished, he wants to punish the guy. I get it, but you're right. Again, 
we would have to, when I say we, because we're trying to be honest brokers to the fans, we would have to say, hey, Jamal Charlo is excellent. Hey, Jamel Charlo is the junior middleweight champion of the world. So that's real. He's the champ at 54. He'd be moving up to fight Canelo, but you should be excited, people. Um, Caleb Plant is, is excellent at 168. I, I called him the number one contender. He has a belt. That would be almost kind of a, not quite like Vernon Forrest, Shane Mosley, but almost like, hey, Canelo, I know you're the champ. Everyone's saying you're the real champ after you beat Callum Smith, if that happens. I think it does. But you got business to do here, right? That would be honest to say he has business with Caleb Plant to call himself the super middleweight champion. He doesn't have to do it right away, but you got to do it. Um, but we'd be selling it. We don't have to triple G Canelo pre-sold, you know, if, if, a million pay-per-view buys or, you know, on DAZN, um, just getting a huge subscriber base. Yeah. Main and if we've learned nothing uh, over the last week or two, it's that mainstream fans have an appetite for boxing. If you mm -hmm. give them a, a really a familiar matchup, right? You know, Jones, you know, Tyson, what are you talking about? Now this is Canelo, Canelo Triple G. It's familiar. I think, too, if you're Canelo and Eddie Reynoso, you have to look at the business of this. Like, Caleb Plant's going to be there. He's in his late 20s. Yeah. The Charlos yeah. are just 30 years old. Like, those fights, end of 2021 into 2022, those fights are going to be there. They may even get bigger if both those guys wins. Eventually, Golovkin goes away. Like, if Canelo doesn't fight him and Golovkin has to go in with, say, Demetrius Andrade or even a Jaime Munguia, like, he could lose, yeah. and then that entire payday goes away. So, from a business perspective... Take the money, man. Like, take the check. And then then go over to PBS. I, I think it's the right move. Now that Canelo is, has finished his litigation there with Golden Boy and DAZN, it's probably the right move for him to stay flexible out there because going to PBC makes sense for a few fights. Maybe you know Billy Joe Saunders gets bigger a few fights later. You can fight him in 2022 or something like that. Flexibility is good for, uh, for Canelo. But 2021, it's got to be Golovkin the second time or third time. It's got to be Golovkin. So, yeah. And I'm with, I'm with you on that in all fronts. And right, if, if it makes dollars, it makes sense, as Floyd Mayweather said. So and that's, you think and that's a great way to punctuate this podcast. Brian, <laughs> good to talk to you, man. Looking forward to seeing you back uh, virtual ringside on Saturday, then actual ringside uh, on the 19th for Canelo and Calum Smith. Good to see you, man. All right, Chris, I'll see you in a few days. Anthony Joshua is the unified heavyweight champion. He regained his titles last December with the win over Andy Ruiz, and he will make his 2020 debut on Saturday when he faces Kubrat Pulev at SSE Arena, where 1,000 fans will be in attendance, making it, I believe, the first UK show to have fans present since the pandemic hit. That's a fight you can see live on DAZN in the U.S., and AJ joins me on the show. AJ, let's start there. How do you feel about having at least a small crowd in attendance for this fight? It's been up and down. I was really like conditioning my mind just to say, no fans allowed. I've got to focus, I've got a tunnel vision. Then they say fans allowed, so I'm thinking, all right, perfect. That's going to be, you know, 40,000, 50,000 people. Then it's like only to a thousand. So it's going to be one of those things where it's like, I'm going to hear everyone's voice. I'm going to hear a pin drop in there, but I've got to keep a tunnel vision. But I feel like it's going to be good for the fans because it's going to be intimate. It's going to be something that they've never experienced before witnessing a heavyweight championship fight amongst a thousand people. So it's going to be like a, a lucky crowd, for example. So it's just up to me and Pulev to make sure we put on a good show and one for them to remember. So when you were deciding, you know, if you were going to fight, when you were going to fight, 
I mean, how tough a call was that? Because, I mean, you're used to fighting in front of huge crowds and making a lot of money that comes with those crowds. I would imagine this is, you know, a pretty big hit for you. I mean, how, how tough was the decision to, to take this fight with all the circumstances? You know, interestingly, um, when, when this opportunity came about, it wasn't so much about the finances. It was like, this is your mandatory. You've got to fight him. And looking back, sometimes I wish I fought him, you know, around the time that Dylan White had his fight with Kovetkin because I would have tried to get out again in, in December. So I wasn't, this year, I wasn't so much concerned about the financial loss. It was like, I just need to stay active and uh, hopefully hope for a better 2021. It is annoying. It's a big loss, but there's a bigger picture that we're trying to create as well. And I need to get past Pulev. He's a tough fighter. And I'm going to have to fight him at some stage. So, you know, there's no better time than to do it now. I feel like I've had a lot of time to work on my craft over the last year. Coming back from Saudi, I've got my titles back. I feel like the pressure's off me now and I can just focus on myself again. Um, so, yeah, go on. So, so you're saying you wish you fought Nettie Hearn's backyard is what you're telling me. Yeah, I wouldn't. I, would, I wouldn't mind fighting in his backyard, getting food about the way, and then like I would have been able to focus on the next fight. And it's back being back on that gravy train again. Like this is the first stop. I'm back at that first stop now. I've been away for a year. Now I'm now like at the first stop of this journey once again. It's like we stopped for a bit and it's about to pick up again. So I wish that like if I would have fought in Eddie Hearn's back garden. It probably would have been six to seven months out of the ring, but now it's been 12 months out of the ring, so it's a bit more of a longer a longer stretch. I think the one question, AJ, I have going into this fight is, has Anthony Joshua changed as a fighter? Has Andy Ruiz changed you and made you perhaps permanently more of a guarded fighter, a guy that fights even more off the jab, or... Are you still the guy that, you know, when he sees somebody hurt, he's a seek and destroy type of fighter, a 90% plus knockout rate type of guy? Has Andy Ruiz changed you? Physically, he hasn't changed me. I still carry and possess the powers. I feel like technically wise, he's, he's improved me. He's changed me for the better. He changed my mental focus as well about what this really means because I was that guy that just come into the boxing gym. Three years later, I was Olympic champion. When I turned pro three years later, I was world champion. So I didn't even really embrace what I was doing. And then I get to see Andy Ruiz living life over in America and Mexico. I was like, wow, that's what it means to be champion. So he definitely changed me for the better. But what he's done, he made me realize there's two different things. There's what we call defining performances and there's defining fights. So I feel like when I boxed Andy Ruiz in Saudi, it wasn't a defining fight but it was a defining performance. I had to go out there and I had to put on a spectacular performance, which was sticking to my game plan to win. So with Pulev, the defining point performance does include power punches and earning his respect. So yeah, I definitely still possess that killer instinct and that, um, gladiator mindset for sure. I haven't lost that. You know, when you were scheduled to fight Ruiz back in June of 2019, a lot of people before that fight were talking about Deontay Wilder. Before this fight, people are talking about Tyson Fury and the possibility you'll face him in 2021. Have you learned from that experience? Has that educated you at all on how to kind of drown out what could be coming next and focus on what's right in front of you? 100%. Last, last year... Uh, it was difficult, man, when I was about to fight Ruiz. Remember, I was that guy that was ducking everyone. 
I didn't want to fight Deontay Wilder. I was going on different sports shows in America and they're saying, why are you ducking Deontay Wilder? I'm like, I'm telling you now, I'm not, and I'm trying to explain myself, but I'm fighting Ruiz in the background. So no one cares about Ruiz. So I'm just sitting there like, you know, when I'm in the ring, you can see in that corner, I'm not even interested. I'm just like, why am I even here? Like, there's no, there's no respect. There's no admiration for fighting these guys. And then when I lost to her, I was like, wow, Ruiz, the new Rocky, and he's this. And I'm like, but why wouldn't you give me that love for beating him? So it was like people were Xing me out of the division. So I just learned to just focus on myself. You know, back then it was easy to live in my head rent-free. You could tell me I was ducking Deontay. I would have tried to back it up. Um, but now I've just learned to just focus on myself. Now people know. Deontay Wilder admitted himself that he gave Fury the offer. <laughs> and he, he could have fought me, but he didn't want to. So now I'm just like, I don't have to prove myself anymore. And that's why I feel more, more settled within myself now. I'm sure you appreciated that uh, Deontay kind of throwing in in one of his rants that he could have made more money to fight you, basically confirming everything that you'd been you and Eddie Hearn have been saying. Yeah, definitely. Leaving like Luis Ortiz, we offered to fight Luis Ortiz. I offered to fight Dylan White, and then Andy Ruiz. Man, respect to the boy. He stepped up. We offered to fight. We thought we were going to fight Jerome Miller, you know, and look. I'm keen to fight anyone. What does it do? It just gives me an opportunity to test myself. And that's why Kubrat Pulev, it's not so much about the financial loss or the financial gain. It's just, let me get out this year because it's been a long time out of the ring. Let me just test myself and see how much I've learned from that Ruiz loss because I lost to Ruiz. I rematched Ruiz. And this is the first fight that isn't Ruiz in a year. So it's like, let me just get back on the gravy train and get back to my old ways of, you know, showcasing what I can do. It will be a bit more technical. Hopefully, I would have improved and become smarter, but it will still be with that mindset of, I want to hit this guy and I want to hurt him. You know, that's what my game plan is. Yeah, and look, it's it's a good fight. I mean, I've said Pulev earned this mandatory position with what he's done since uh, that uh, Vladimir Klitschko loss many years ago. Uh, is it at all hard for you, though, all that being said about focusing on Pulev, I mean, you versus Fury is like the biggest fight in British boxing history. It is a fight that will probably put 100,000 fans, God willing, in a stadium in the UK if you fight there. I mean, is it hard not to think about that stuff? It is hard not to. But remember, what what I've learned is that none of these guys live in my head no more. I just know that with all that stuff with Wilder and Fury last year, Fury was even, it was like Fury and Wilder came together to try and lock me out of the division. It was like both of them came together to say, I'm the weak link in the division. So back then I was always trying to back, back myself and be like, no, I'm this, I'm that. Um, Fury's this and Fury's that. But now I don't really... When Fury's ready, he knows where to find me. When Wilder's ready, he knows where to find me. Um, and I'm going to sit here and continue on my path until they're ready. As I said, Wilder last year we offered. Luis Ortiz last year we offered. Jerome Miller last year we offered. Dylan White last year we offered, Andrew Ruiz last year we offered. Uh, that's a good roster of names that we tried to bring to the heavyweight division. We didn't fight, no, no, I'm not going to mention any other heavyweights names to disrespect them, but the other heavyweights out there are fighting lower tier opponents and then they're telling me that I don't want to challenge myself. So all I know is I know who I am. I like challenges and I'm willing to fight these guys. So when these guys are ready, they know where to find me. Explain to me the picture that surfaced over the summer of you and Fury 
crossing paths on vacation. How did that happen? So it was like, uh, you know, in Europe, one of the countries were were open, so you was allowed to travel there. So I took a break, a uh, 10-day break over to get some sun and to do some warm weather training, etc. So I'm walking down, it's like the port where all the shops are and stuff like that. And it's a one-way traffic, so cars are only allowed to go in one direction, but customers are allowed to walk up and down the street. And then uh, I see some guy in a Range Rover, and then he's kind of wound down the window, you know, when you're creeping up and the window comes down, he's like, ah, oh, Tyson Fury. He's like, how are you doing, mush? <laughs> 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 so we had a quick five-minute conversation. Um, you know, all respect, but you know what it is? If I go off of what I feel, the conversation is about we're going to fight one day. So just, I'm, I'm, I'm here, like, I'm not going anywhere. That's the kind of conversation. So even though it's about respect and he's with his family, I'm with a couple of my, my cousins and my pals, it's just one of those things where I'm looking at him and he's talking to me as to say, one day we're going to get it on. You got to love the new narrative, though. You know, a year and a half ago, Deontay Wilder was going to knock you out. Now Tyson Fury is going to outbox you. You you clearly can't win. No, I really I know it's weird. But I think I've I've come to learn this year. I've just got one of them faces that people love to hate. <laughs> I swear. But it, it understanding that has made me tougher. The stuff I went through last year with my loss, the stuff I went through with being um black labeled and being called like someone who ducks the heavyweight division and then Wilder admitting that we gave him an offer. It just made me realize that all I have to do is focus on myself. Um, I don't worry about no one else. All I worry about is myself. Before I let you go, you, you were, as you said, pretty well thrashed last year after the Ruiz loss. But, I mean, you took it like a man. You, you took it on the chin. You congratulated Andy Ruiz. You went back to work and you beat him six months later. I, I'm wondering what your reaction was you know, kind of watching Wilder unravel over the last six months as he blamed everyone, cited conspiracy theories, yeah. uh, said the referee was drunk. I mean, w w as you're watching that, what did you think? He, he didn't even have it as tough as I did. I had, like, fighters telling me I should never take the immediate rematch with Ruiz. Fighters telling me that Ruiz is the next best thing coming out of America. Um, fighters telling me if I lose, I should retire. You know, Andre Ward saying that, you know, I'm just a jacked up heavyweight and I need to focus more on my boxing. I had a lot of people were cussing me about, and it's like they just ignored everything I'd done for the division, everything I'd done for the amateur scene as well. And it was just like, I'm just some heavyweight that just looks good that is trying to fight. And I was like, wow, so this is what the division think of me. So he, he come from a place of he's the hardest puncher since Ernie Shavers, he's this, he's that. He took his loss. No one really disrespected him and told him he should quit. No one said anything, but I think that he couldn't live with it himself. So he's now come out and like, that's just the way he's expressing it to himself in the world. And he just can't get over it. Like Tyson Fury hasn't been too, too vocal about it. The, the boxing greats and legends and icons of the industry haven't said anything too negative towards Deontay Wilder. It's only when he come out with all of his excuses that they're saying like, he's just talking too much. That's all they're saying about him. So he's lucky, but he just doesn't know how to handle the responsibilities of being a champion. And it just shows that when it's all said and done and he retires, it'll be interesting to see what path he goes down because without boxing, he ain't got no backbone. And just last question for you. The, the 
you know, you are, are defending your title against Pulev. The fight against Joshua, everybody's hoping is for undisputed. It's possible the WBO will say you've got to fight Usyk next. Tell me what matters to you. Does it matter to you for that fight to be for undisputed? Or are you willing to drop a belt to make that fight happen next? In my heart of hearts, I don't think I'll drop a belt. I think I'll fight Usyk. No problem. Um, but I feel like the governing body should overrule uh, a mandatory for an undisputed fight if they could. So if they were keen to get this undisputed fight on, I'm sure they'll say, look, Usyk, right now we have the undisputed championship for the world fight coming together, which overrides a mandatory. So, But what I mean is that I've worked hard to try and um, you know put undisputed fights together last year. This year has been a bit up and down. I have to really focus on Pulev and then hopefully next year we can then look, you know, two years on from 2019, hopefully me and Fury can finally get it on and hopefully the governing bodies will see and then say, you know, we'll override the mandatory position so you can compete for the undisputed championship of the world. I think you should fight for the Bridger Wade title, actually. Is that the, is that the one in between? <laughs> it's the one in between. Yes. Is that what they call it? The Bridger Wade? Yes, it's so stupid. That's the one it's that Wilder so- should fight for. Uh, you know, everybody's turning it down, though. Michael Hunter said he wouldn't want to do it. Like, nobody wants to do it. Sooner or later, someone will. Sooner or later, someone will fight. Oh, they're all dumb, though. It's all, it's such a stupid title. Uh, AJ, AJ, always great to talk to you, man. Looking forward to your fight on Saturday, December twelfth. Catch that fight on the zone. Good luck, man, and we'll talk Thank soon. Thank you very much. Bye. This is it. We've got an Amex Platinum Pro on our hands, ladies and gentlemen. We haven't seen anyone relax like this before in the Centurion Lounge. (sighs) Is he connecting to complimentary Wi-Fi? Oh, my. Look at that. He is. And you will not believe where he's going next. The Amex dedicated card member entrance for the win. Unbelievable. When you get travel perks with Amex Platinum, you're part of the action. That's the powerful backing of American Express. Terms apply. Learn more at americanexpress.com slash with Amex. Attention all wrestling aficionados. Wrestling with Freddie makes its triumphant return for an electrifying fourth season. This is Freddie Prince Jr., and I am beyond thrilled to announce that our wrestling extravaganza is back, and joining me once again is the one and only Jeff Dye. Get ready as we highlight the most jaw-dropping matches, dissect the fiercest feuds, and uncover the latest twists and turns in the world of pro wrestling. We're dusting off our legendary side quests and unleashing a barrage of brand new segments that will keep you guys on the edge of your seat like our talks on unsanctioned Thursdays. Freddie, you know we gotta give the people what they want. This season, we have an all-star lineup of special guests who are gonna be gracing our podcast, bringing with them their own unique insights, experiences, and all of that in the world of pro wrestling and beyond. Whether you're a seasoned wrestling veteran or a fresh-faced newcomer, we promise an experience like no other. So buckle up, wrestling fans. Listen to Wrestling with Freddie as part of the My Cultura Podcast Network, available on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm preaching to somebody today who is waiting for God to give you your next step. And you don't know what it is yet. You need God to show you your next step. Because, God, I can't stay where I am like I am where it is. This isn't going to work. I I have to move on, but I don't know where. A lot of time you'll use it as an excuse. Well, I don't know how. I don't know where. I don't know what. God, if you show me. God, if you tell me. God, no, 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 no. You know enough right now. And if you needed to know more, he would show you. Hey, this is Stephen Furtick 
I want to invite you to listen to my podcast, Elevation with Stephen Furtick. I am here to help you for the battles that you face in life, for the times when you feel discouraged, for the times that you need guidance from God. I want to give you the truth of what he says about you to help you rise to your full potential. Listen to Elevation with Stephen Furtick every Sunday and Friday on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. All right, Eric Draft is a two-time Emmy-winning director, and his latest project is a terrific one. Macho, the Hector Macho Camacho story, which tells the story of the life and tragic death of one of the most charismatic figures in boxing. The documentary is currently airing on Showtime and can be seen on Showtime's on-demand platforms. And Eric joins me here on the show. Eric, thanks for joining me. Thanks so much for having me, Chris. All right, so as with any project, there's got to be sort of an impetus to it, right? Like, why Macho Camacho? Well, you know, Camacho was one of those fighters that when I was a kid and, you know, growing up, especially being from New York City myself, and he was from Spanish Harlem, he was just one of those guys that, like, popped out of the TV. You know, one of those guys that, like, really transcended the sport. You know, he was, like, brash. He was so much charisma. You know, his outfits were over the top. He was in your face. And he was really, you know, it was, it was really fun to watch him. So, you know, just as a fan, uh, as a kid, I was always uh, really impressed with him. And, uh, and then when I was a journalist, I got to cover him in uh, 1997 against Leonard. I was working at Fox. And, uh, and it was great to be around him. And he just, like, filled the room. And, uh, and at that point, I also uh, met his promoter, Michael Acree, who is one of the quiet giants uh, in this sport. He was Camacho's promoter. He was Duran's promoter. Just a great guy, one of my very dear friends. And, um, you know, so I got to meet him then. And then I took a turn in my career, and I started working in boxing. I wound up representing a whole lot of fighters, uh, working in the sport, working with a lot of promoters. And I met Hector Jr., who in his own right is a great champion and a great guy. So I knew the family. And, um, and then when he was murdered, I was like, wow. I mean, you know, I always knew he lived on the edge, but, and, and that, you know, there was always a little sense of, there was always a sense of danger about his life. Um, But his murder was just, you know, it was just, it really took me for, um, you know, it really got me down. And, And I was actually in Panama interviewing Roberto Duran, at the time for No Mas, which was on ESPN. And I remember asking, it was a couple of months after his murder, and I asked uh, Duran, well, you know, what did you think of uh, when you heard about Camacho uh, uh, getting killed? And he started to tear up. And I knew right then that if Roberto Duran, you know, the toughest Latino fighter in the history of boxing, arguably, maybe Chavez, you know, there's a couple others, but, you know, right up there. If he would all of a sudden start crying and start getting so worked up, that, that Camacho's death had a major impact. Um, I did do a little filming in 2013 in Puerto Rico with his son, but I put the project down. I had a whole host of other things coming up. And about uh, two and a half years ago, I was like, listen, I can't believe nobody's ever done has done this story. I didn't want this unbelievable character to be lost in the history of you know the sport uh, and not be celebrated again. And I knew that there was this question about his murder, and it was still unsolved. I couldn't believe seven years after his murder at that time, it's now eight, um, that his murder was unsolved, and uh, you know it was uh, a pretty easy 
connection to talk to uh, Showtime, and uh, they got it right away. And uh, and it was two years ago, basically. Now we started with the project. You know, it's it's not unique for boxers to be the kind of people where their lives can go two very different directions at a certain point in time. And Camacho certainly exemplifies that. And you covered this in in the documentary where, I mean, look, he was in jail at age 16. I mean, him becoming a world championship boxer, it seems is just as likely to him being serving a life sentence or being dead even earlier than when he passed away. And, and, you know, Chris, it's such a good point because we've seen this in other sports with other athletes. It's like they're on the precipice of either greatness or, you know, jail or, you know, the streets. And, and you know, he, it's such a testament to his talent that he was able to hold it together for so long. I mean, he had almost 84, I think he had 84 fights. It's unbelievable the length of his career. And he only got knocked to the canvas twice, never knocked out. Um but yeah, you're right. I mean, you know, from Spanish Harlem, from the projects, you know, the streets were, were very alluring. You know, when you're, when you're a young kid and you've got nothing and a guy on the corner says, you know, go move this package for me or do this or that and I'll give you a hundred bucks and that's more than your parents are bringing home, you know, in a week at that time, you know, it's very alluring. And, and thank God, you know, he found boxing and there were a couple of mentors and coaches early on in his career that that saw his talent and helped him get to where he was. Yeah, there was a period of time when when Sugar Ray retired that you could probably argue that Hector Camacho was the best fighter in the world, you know, in the early to mid uh, 1980s. You know, when you look at how his his prime years went, like how much did he leave on the table because of whether it's drugs or associating with the wrong people, which is something boxing uh, boxers do, as you know, all the time. Uh, how much did he leave on the table as a fighter? Um, well, first, I want to agree with you. Like 1986, right at the Rosario fight, you know, mm. if you look at the Rosario poster, the original poster, there's a great uh, artwork of Camacho. And on the undercard is Julio Cesar Chavez and Mike Tyson. So in 1986, <laughs> you're right. You know, it was macho time. I mean, mm -hmm. he owned the sport. Um, and as far as what he left on the table, it's hard to tell. I mean, you know, he was one of those guys that would party, then stop, train, fight. And then as soon as the fight was over, it was party time. Um, you know, he held it together as best as he could. Um, but again, it's a testament to his unbelievable world-class talent that he could do that and get away with that. Um, so I don't know, maybe he would have had, you know, he probably, if he didn't do drugs and didn't have that lifestyle, he would have had a better uh, record. Um, but I don't know that his career would have necessarily meant more. I don't think Camacho's career is defined by wins and losses. I think it's defined as a real pioneer and trendsetter. He was completely authentic inside and outside of the ring. He believed in the costumes he was wearing in the ring, and he could just as comfortably walk through the ropes and into the crowd with that outfit and walk home with that and be fine. In fact, <laughs> his, uh, his ex-wife, Amy, told us a couple funny stories. Uh, I could tell you one real quick one mm -hmm. um, that didn't make the movie. She said she was, uh, you know... There was a couple of things, but she said like you know, there were nights that she didn't want to go out with him because he had more fishnet on than him. 
than she did. And she's like, I'm not going out with him like this. And then she said, you know, one time they were in a, in, in a shoe store and he goes, Oh, Amy, I really like those shoes. And the clerk over here then says, Oh, those are for women. They walk outside of the store. He gives her his Amy $200 and says, go get me those in size 10. <laughs> you know, so he, he loved the dramatic, he loved the flair and, and he would wear that outside unabashed. You know, with covering boxing the last 20 years, you know, you, I, I've seen or saw Floyd Mayweather make the turn from, I don't want to call him a hero early in his career, but from uh, a hero-esque type figure to a villain. And that was intentional on the part of Floyd Mayweather. Camacho's didn't seem like it was intentional. When, when he sort of turned into this villainous figure, people, one people booed from the one that was extremely popular, uh, it just seemed like that happened organically. How, how did that turn happen for Hector Camacho? I think there you could, if you look back now, you could see like two main reasons how he went from the hero to the villain. One was his boxing style. I mean, you know, and it was that Rosario fight too, where you can actually look back. He got rocked. He won the fight. He got rocked. And he went from being a fighter to a dancer. And he, man, could he dance. He had unbelievable legs. And some of the greatest fighters have the best footwork and the great, greatest legs. And, he, and, and a lot of his fans left him. They said, you know, we want a Chavez. We want a Toro Gatti. We want a guy that's just going to stand there and brawl. And that wasn't Camacho. That's probably why a lot of people don't like Mayweather. I mean, Mayweather, you know, once in a while he'll put on a boxing clinic. But he, his, his style is, is, is pretty boring to watch. He's an amazing athlete and a great defensive fighter, but that's not the kind of boxing that most fans want to see. And then the other thing was that it's just, you know, the trouble he started getting into, the antics outside of the rings. People stopped, you know, thinking like, oh, this is okay, this is okay. I mean, he had some serious defenses, you know. He got, you know, there were drug charges. Um, there was, you know, a domestic abuse charge. You know, there were things that people started to say, you know, uh, not my guy anymore. So, mm -hmm. but those same problems are also what made him relatable and what made him so appealing to many Puerto Rican uh, fans out there where he wasn't Trinidad or Cono or Vasquez, you know, he didn't have maybe that same, same talent or win, so to speak, but he, he fell in, in public and people could relate to him. And so he became what, what Lou DiBella called, and he's one of our executive producers, called him the hero of the street. And that's mm -hmm. really what he was. And it was that, those same streets that lifted him up and made him for who he was that ultimately brought him down. What do you mean by that? Well, he could never get out of the streets. I mean, he mm -hmm. loved people. He loved just laughing and, and being affable and hugging people and touching people and signing autographs and, you know, being amongst people. And he felt a kinship to the people that he was, you know, brought up with. And he never looked down his nose. You know, early on in his career, he was still living it with his mother in the projects, even when he won his first, you know, belt. You know, so he was really a man of the people. And I think that's why he was that hero of the streets. And even at the end, his undoing, you know, he was very comfortable going out. He felt so confident in himself. Like, who's going to kill Macho Camacho? Mm -hmm. And uh, Puerto Rico right now is a very dangerous place. And the younger generation didn't take to him so kindly. Uh, and it's more violent 
than I think he, he, he estimated. And, uh, you know, there's only one third of all murders get solved there. So, you know, the fact is, is that if Puerto Rico can't solve the murder of their hero of their streets, then whose murder can they solve? So let's talk about that for a minute. You you say that the younger generation didn't take to Camacho too kindly, and in the documentary, you uh, you know show the the first world title fight that took place in Puerto Rico, and, and it talks about that that you know Camacho is Puerto Rican by descent, but not necessarily embraced as as the native son. How would you describe the dynamic between Camacho and his native country? Well, you know, again, and this was, I learned this, uh, making the film. There's, there's, there's a, a type of, uh, a, a term called New Yorican. And a New Yorican, uh, is someone that's, uh, born in Puerto Rico, but moves to New York or is, uh, uh born in New York, but is Puerto Rican. And they call them New Yorkans as opposed to island Puerto Ricans. And at first they didn't accept, people of the island didn't really accept him. You know, Trinidad is a Puerto Rican born in Puerto Rico. Cotto is born in Puerto Rico. Um, but it's hard for someone born in New York to capture the minds and, and, and hearts, hearts and soul of the, the uh, Puerto Ricans on the island. And he was able to do that when he beat Lamone, Bazooka Lamone for the title in Puerto Rico. That was his moment. That was his coming out moment. And, you know, it was brilliant that Don King, you know, promoted it there. You know, one of the best promoters ever, in maybe, you know, in just the sense of understanding where to put fights on, how, who to put them on against. And, uh, and that was really his big uh, homecoming. So as you start to get into the, the death of Camacho, and I was reading that, you know, going to Bayern was your first, your first stop in, in kind of preparing uh, for this documentary. What did you know and what did you learn about, you know, his killing? Well, we learned a lot. And in fact, uh, this was the most difficult documentary I've done to date. Um, I did a whole version, which is just about the investigation. I mean, we went to some really scary places. Uh, you know, we were, uh, you know, we, we were held up uh, at one place where a guy came out. We were driving down this road and another car comes in front of us, stops us. Guy comes at the window, goes roll down the window. I'm like, I'm not rolling down the window. Let's roll down the window. He show, he lifts up his shirt and shows me a piece. You know, I'm born and raised in New York City. I've never seen a gun on the street. I saw it there. Of course, I rolled down the window. We were lucky to have Hector Jr. there who quit thinking, ba 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 in Spanish. And he said, okay, you could go, but no cameras. But, you know, there was, there was another time like that, too, with our armed guard. So what did I learn? I learned not only how dangerous it is, but there's a lot more to the story. There was really bad police work. Um, you know, the two suspects, the two hitmen uh, got through, uh, you know, they had a chase with the, uh, with the police and got away. Um, the police finally went back to get the car and the car had been moved so they couldn't get the forensics. Um, and this was done in broad daylight. So, you know, the film talks about the different theories, uh, but there's a lot more information out there. And um, there's a good chance that uh, at this point, the police know who did it. So it's an active investigation. And we, and I didn't want to tell too much in order to uh, hamper the investigation, of course. Did it surprise you as you learned all the things that you learned that this case was still unsolved? I mean, 
a figure as prominent as Camacho that something like this could go unsolved up until this point? Yeah, and I mean, you know, and and again, you know, we have footage going to the police and they gave every excuse. Well, Maria happened and a lot of the suspects left the island. Uh, you know, you know, as recently as, you know, the the government with the protest, you know, the government was basically, you know, uh, you know, stepped down, a lot of the governor resigned and and so, you know, there's so many excuses uh to why, but but now it seems like the 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 FBI uh, you know, is involved and, and things are changing. So, you know, we can really hope that, that our work and you know, sometimes it's the press just showing up with a camera. Oh, yeah, reminds them that there are people that care about this and we're watching you and you better do your job because, you know, you've got a country to protect and, you know, this is one of your heroes. Mm. Before I let you go, the you kind of touched on this a, a little bit with his, you know, talking about him being a trendsetter and a pioneer. But what is Hector Camacho's legacy in boxing? He was a, a very good boxer, at times a great boxer. I, you probably wouldn't consider him one of the great of all time necessarily, but as far as legacy goes, how would you define it? You know, I might, I might put him in the great of all times because he fought everybody. You know, when, mm. I, when I first started, you know, you know, one of the things that we were up against, you know, one of the, we talked to another network just, and they were like, oh, well, you know, why is he so important? You know, and, and can you give us the, the beats, the story beats of the documentary? Well, you know, you can't give story beats of a documentary. You know, a documentary is you got a story and then you got to trust that we're going to go out and tell it and find out new information. So, you know, that, but, but when you go to his legacy, he fought everybody. It was a totality of his fight. He didn't, and he never got knocked down and he went toe to toe and the lifestyle he had, he still was able to hang with these guys. So to your earlier question, he probably would have got more wins had the lifestyle not been part of his, you know, uh, training and his career so much. Uh, but ultimately I think what he brought to the sport was a level of attention that the sport needs, you know, right now, I'm sorry to say, but the, probably the biggest fight of the year was Tyson Roy Jones Jr. <laughs> you know, and, and that's a commentary because Tyson transcends the sport. We need the Camachos. We need the Tysons. We need those personalities to get people to watch the sport because just good boxing alone, unfortunately, is not enough. I mean, you know, it's something, but we want to we want to celebrate our heroes. We want to know their stories, and we want to know that there's something relatable that they have. Maybe they have a flaw. Maybe they've gone oh, had some obstacle, and those are the things that make us really care about the people and the, the athletes we watch. Yeah, I think that's why a lot of people now may be excited about guys like Ryan Garcia, Teofimo Lopez, even Javante Davis, young guys that may have that that charisma and certainly the desire to, to face the best and to change boxing uh, for the better. Uh, Eric, it's a terrific documentary. You can check it out on Showtime on all the Showtime on-demand platforms. Uh, start to finish is gripping, man. Thanks, uh, thanks for taking some time to join me. Thank you. Thanks so much, Chris. Really appreciate it. All right, that's it for this week's episode. My thanks to my guests. As always, subscribe to the podcast over at Apple Podcasts. Rate, review, you know I appreciate it, and I'll see you next week.
It's Freddie Prinze Jr. and Jeff Dye back in the ring. Wrestling with Freddie makes its triumphant return for an electrifying fourth season. Hey, Jeff, are you ready to rumble our way into an all-new season of Wrestling with Freddie? You better believe I have. I've been practicing my body slams, and I'm jacked. All right, don't go injuring yourself now. We'll be highlighting the best stories and matches of the week in wrestling from AEW, WWE, and have one-on-one talks with the best talents in the world of pro wrestling. Listen to Wrestling with Freddie on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Saleya Mosin, and I've covered economic policy for years and reported on how it impacts people across the United States. In 2016, I saw how voters were leaning towards Trump and how so many Americans felt misunderstood by Washington. So I started The Big Take DC. We dig into how money, politics, and power shape government and the consequences for voters. With new episodes every Thursday, you can listen to The Big Take DC on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. The Big Take from Bloomberg News brings you what's shaping the world's economies with the smartest and best-informed business reporters around the world. We cover the stories behind what's moving money in markets and help you understand what's happening, what it means, and why it matters every afternoon. I'm Sarah Holder. I'm Saleya Mosin. And I'm David Gura. Listen to The Big Take on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.